0: God spoke to Joseph in dreams, and that seems pretty awesome. That seems like a really incredible way for God to speak to you, and a pretty exciting way for God to speak to you, and something that's just a really cool part of someone's life. But not everybody thought that Joseph's gift was awesome. In particular, if you know the story, you know that Joseph's brothers did not find Joseph's gift very awesome at all. And now, in fairness... Joseph's dreams were not particularly positive for his brother because he was already his dad's favorite. That was very clear. His dad bought him special clothes, and that had to make the rest of his brothers feel very uncomfortable. And now he's having these dreams where his brothers are symbolically bowing down before him. And nobody wants to hear your little brother, who is your parents' favorite, just celebrate how one day you're all going to bow down to me. So it's understandable that this might cause a little bit of sibling rivalry. It's understandable that this might cause a little bit of animosity. But I don't feel like I'm jumping out on a limb by saying that their reaction might have been a little over the top. Because one day, Joseph was out walking, looking for his brothers, and they are all kind of together out in the distance, and they saw him coming. And one of the brothers just decided to put it all out there. He says, you know what, guys? I'm just going to say what we're all thinking. That guy's the worst. I don't like him. You don't like him. None of us like him. Who does he think he is having these dreams where we bow down to him? And look at his fancy coat that dad got him. I do not like our brother. And I think I have a solution. We should take his coat and then we should kill him. And you would think that everybody at that point would go, whoa, bro, too far. Maybe we could you know, bully him up a little bit. Maybe we could ostracize him and give him the silent treatment. Maybe we could do a lot of other things, but maybe that's a bit far. But no, they all seem to think it was a really good idea, except for one of the brothers, the voice of reason. And he stepped in. He said, guys, listen, this is insane. We cannot kill our own brother. He is our own flesh and blood. There's certainly another step that we could take to express our anger for him, but also not take his life. Let's be reasonable about this. What we should do is catch him and take away his coat and throw him in a pit. And then we'll take his coat and rub it in some blood and tell dad that some animals killed him, and then we'll sell him into slavery. And they all thought, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. And so that's exactly what they did. And now the story ends very poorly for them because we know it fast-forwards a little while. Joseph has a really rough go at it for a while, and then all of a sudden he's second in command of the most powerful nation in the world, and they find themselves, guess what, bowing before their brother. So, while their decision was a bit extreme, it does teach us something very important, and it reminds us that divisions and dissension are not very far off from us at any point in time. Maybe this example was extreme, but especially in the family context, this kind of rivalry and and brokenness is always there waiting to happen. Divisions, envy heartbreak, on and on and on. These things are all lurking around every corner. And as we've been talking about the unity of the church, we've seen Paul give us the call that the church, both the local church, like us here at Redeeming Grace Community Church, and the church all over the world, it's our responsibility to guard the unity and the peace that Jesus has given us through salvation. So how do we do that? How do we protect our unity? How do we stay together as the church? Are there any practices or actions that we can put into place to remain one body when there are so many factors outside of the church and inside of the church that are trying to tear us apart? So today we're going to ask those questions of Paul. And we're going to see as we look at Ephesians 4, verse 25 through 32, how Paul teaches us to live inside the context of Christian community. And what responsibilities we're supposed to take. And we're going to see several exchanges where Paul tells us to put away things that would tear the community apart and replace those with things that would build the community up. And so, again, our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. And this is the word of God. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each of you speak truth with his neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give peace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slammer be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you may god add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word thanks be to god for his word father we thank you for your word and we also thank you for the church and god you know the difficulties that come anytime a group of people are together for a long period of time you know the difficulties that can come and arise in a context like the church that's full of people who, though most of us may know you and trust in you for salvation, we are far, far from perfect. And so, Fathers, we look through your word today. Teach us how to live in a way that doesn't divide, that doesn't tear down, or that doesn't hinder the work of the body of Christ but that encourages and builds up one another as we love each other as Christ has loved us, as we forgive each other as Christ has forgiven us, as we are kind to one another as Christ has been kind to us. So teach us these things so that we can live these things. And as we live these things, help this to be a place where a Christian community shines in a world that's full of darkness and that through our love for one another and our love for you, we will go out and love our neighbors and our community as ourselves, and we will see people come into contact with your grace and your mercy through the way that we live and the things that we say. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. In verse 25, the first part of this section that we're looking at today, this section begins with Paul saying, Therefore having put away any falsehood, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And so because this starts with the word therefore, we know that this idea that Paul is laying out now is directly connected to everything that Paul just said. There is a cause and effect relationship happening here. And so let's rewind and talk about what Paul has been teaching us in Ephesians 3 and 4. He reminded us, starting even back in Ephesians 2, that if we trust in Christ for salvation, that we who were once dead in our sins and trespasses were made alive in Christ. That we who were enemies of God have now become sons and daughters of God. And because of that, through this awesome mystery, God has taken people who trust in Christ, who have come from all different backgrounds and all different places. In the context of Ephesians, these Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, and brought them together to be one body completely united with one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, all those good one things that we talked about, God has brought us together through Christ for the purpose of doing his work together as one body with many different gifts. But in that, there's something very true about our identity. We're reminded of the good news of the gospel, that for anyone who has trusted in Christ for salvation, who has believed in Jesus and trusted in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, that we aren't simply forgiven, but we have been made new. And Paul says that the old is past and that the new has come, that we are new creations. And so he says, because all of that is true, because all of those things are accurate for anyone who's trusted Christ, therefore, we need to put away all falsehoods. Because everything that Paul has taught us is true about who we are individually and as one body. We need to put away any of the lies that still remain inside of our lives. And when Paul says this, he assumes that we believe him. He assumes that we understand that we aren't the same. That if we've trusted in Christ for salvation, that we never will be the same. That we've taken off the lie of who we were. And we've put on our true identity in Jesus. And if we believe that, that we would put away the falsehood of everything that held us back. And if we put away the falsehood of all these things that we used to be and accepted the truth of who we now are in Christ, then that means that we now have the responsibility to live out truth. And to live out that truth and no longer be held back by the things that once held us back. But it also means that we need to speak truth. Not only in our relationship with God, but in our relationship to one another. If the foundation of Christian community is love, and it is, we see that all throughout the Bible, that the foundation of Christian community is love, that we're Christians to begin with because God has first loved us and that God loves us with an undying love and it was out of his love and kindness that he gave Christ to offer salvation to the world. And so we're only able to be followers of Christ and to be a part of the church because God loved us first. And then Paul tells us that love is the foundation of our relationship, and that no matter what we do as a church, if we have all the gifts in the world, and if we give everything that we have away, and we worship God loudly and fully, but if it's not rooted in love, then it's empty and worthless and meaningless. And so love is the foundation of the church, of the Christian community. And if love is the foundation then truth is the cornerstone. Truth is that first piece of Christian community on which everything else we experience is built. Now the problem is that we, and not just us, but we as humanity, the whole man, women, everybody who's ever been born and ever taken a breath, we have all been hiders and liars since the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that when we see this picture of sin entering the world, the very first thing that happened on the other side of sin is hiding and deceit. They could have stepped up and they could have said, yeah, listen, this is what we did. This is why we did it. We're really sorry. But they didn't. Adam said, no, it wasn't me, man. It was this girl. And she said, no, it wasn't my fault. It was this serpent. And they passed the blame and tried to hide and even tried to hide themselves from God. And ever since then, that pattern of hiding has continued in each and every one of our lives. And unfortunately, I think the church is a place that that happens more often than anywhere else. The church can foster a dishonest, cordial environment and sometimes silence. And we do it for a lot of good reasons. Because it's easier when somebody comes up to us and says, hey, how are you today? To say, fine, I'm good. Everything's okay even though we know it's not. It's easy when somebody comes up and says, are, are you okay, you look a little down, to say, no, I'm, I'm fine, everything's good, even when we know everything isn't. It's much easier if someone comes up to us and says, hey, did I, did I do something to upset you? I feel like we've been a little distant to say, no, we're good, even when we're not, because we're worried. We're worried that if we're honest and we're worried that if we say what's really going on, if we are vulnerable enough to let somebody else in on our hurt or even on the good things that happen in our life, that we are putting ourselves out there in a way that we can't take it back. And so there's a fear that maybe somebody could be jealous if we talk about things that we're we're excited about in our lives. There's a fear that people could pity us if we talk about the things that are going on and the difficulties in our lives. There's a fear that if we talk about how we've been upset by somebody, then that relationship may be permanently broken. And so instead of that, we would rather be silent and let that fester and grow into something much deeper. But this is not who we are in Christ. This is not the kind of relationships that we were designed to have as followers of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus tells us that it's the truth that will set us free. Jesus tells us that the truth is what opens the door to salvation to us. And then through Paul here, Jesus calls us to be united by truth, that our community, that our relationships are supposed to be founded in truth. And I think it's really interesting how Paul words this here. Because he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Paul says the reason that we should speak truth is because we belong together, that we are one body. And so for Paul, it doesn't make sense to be dishonest or even to hide from one another because it's the spiritual equivalent of lying to ourselves. And the church is no place for lies or deceit. The body of Christ is no place for dishonest invulnerability. We need to learn to be open, We need to learn to be honest and even vulnerable with one another. Now, the difficulty of that is that means that we have to have a very unique culture in the life of our church. Because in order to be vulnerable, I need to know that somebody else, when I am vulnerable, is going to receive that and care for that the way that it should be. And if somebody's going to be vulnerable with me to talk about things that are going on in their lives, places that they're hurt, places that they're broken, or even places that they're joyful, or even issues that they might have with me, I need to be compassionate and gracious enough to hear that and receive that without being condescending, without being judgmental, without being all of those things that tend to come with vulnerability. And so that means we have to have a very unique culture that is countercultural to every other culture that exists in our world where vulnerability is so hard to find. Now, as a disclaimer, this does not mean that we say whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. And as we're going to see in a little while, this is still very fixed on the idea that when we speak, we do so with grace-filled words that build up the body of Christ. But those words do need to be honest. We need to have a culture of speaking openly and honestly with each other and building our relationships on truth and trust. Paul has taught us over and over again that we are one body with one calling. And we have one Christ and one salvation that comes from one love, from one God. And because of that, we have no reason to hide from one another. We all share in the same story that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. And that there is no one righteous but Jesus. And Jesus imparts his righteousness to us. And so, yes, of course we all sin. Of course we all struggle. Of course we all have bad days. Sometimes we have good days. And, yes, sometimes we have struggles with one another. But there is no reason that we can't share those things with one another and bear one another's burdens and laugh when we laugh and mourn when we mourn and have this open dialogue inside the context of the church that fosters growth, not just personally, not just in our walk with Christ, but in each and every one of our lives. And so Paul tells us to put away falsehood and to put on words of truth with one another. Then he continues on, he starts to talk about anger. He says, be angry and sin not, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity for the devil. Now, I don't know if you've been in this situation. Maybe you have. But for some reason, when I was growing up, I spent a lot of time with friends, and I had some friends that were particularly volatile, that had some tempers. And so when I would go over to their house, I would find myself in what I would imagine is the most uncomfortable non-emergency situation that I've been in. And that is when you find yourself directly in the middle of someone else's family fight. Have anybody else been there? I had friends, and they were just so hot-headed, and their parents were a little bit that way too. And I would be at their house, and World War III would open up. And they're yelling at each other, and they're screaming and throwing things and flipping out and calling each other names. And I'm just sitting on the couch trying to dig a hole inside of it so that I can get away. But it was super uncomfortable. And then afterwards, they would both, I don't know why, parent and child just come to me and explain the whole thing. Like I wanted to hear any more of what was happening or what was going on. And like I wouldn't rather just dig a hole and never emerge again until it was time for me to leave. But it's a very uncomfortable situation. But all of us have our family stuff. And it reminds us that the family dynamic is a very unique one, no matter what your family situation looks like. Because what happens in the context of a family is we have this very volatile combination of closeness and proximity, similarity, and then also radical differences. And when that is mixed up long enough, it's inevitable that at some point in time, it's going to come to a head. And the mixture of those similarities and distances and the fact that we're always together is just going to explode. The church is a family. And there are plenty of reasons to get angry inside of the church. We've talked a lot over the past few weeks about the beauty of the diversity of the church. That we don't look like each other, that we come from different places and different backgrounds, that all of us have different skills and gifts and abilities, and God brings us all together for this beautiful purpose of going out and preaching and teaching and serving for the gospel everywhere that we go. But the other side of the beauty of diversity comes the difficulty of differences. And so with that in mind, Paul gives us this command when he starts in verse 26. He says, be angry. And that doesn't seem right. It seems like Paul should say, suck it up, buttercup, just deal with it and just learn how to get along with people and just fight it and push it all inside so that nobody knows you're angry until finally you don't feel anymore and everything is okay. But that's not what Paul says. Paul gives us an explicit command that when the time is needed, that we become angry. And part of that is because of what he just said. Because speaking truth Speaking honestly with one another, being open and vulnerable with one another, and living life together and being engaged in one another's lives, not just coming on Sundays saying, hey, how are you doing and leaving, but being involved not just in community groups but really deeply involved in one another's lives means that there is an inescapability that at some point in time somebody is going to make you angry and somebody is going to be angered by you. And so Paul tells us to be angry, but then of course he continues. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Paul gives us permission here to speak honestly and also to feel honestly. Paul doesn't take our feelings and make them into something that we shouldn't experience. In fact, anger itself is part of the imago Dei. It's part of the image of God in our lives because we see in Scripture that sometimes God gets angry. And so anger has its place in our world and in our lives. But while Paul tells us that we can feel honestly, he also tells us that our feelings cannot run our actions. And so many times we are driven by our emotions. And so here in this passage, Paul tells us to put off wild anger, anger that runs our lives and dominates who we are and dominates how we think in fits of rage. He tells us to put all of that away and put on this gift, this spiritual fruit of self-control, to be angry and not sin. So even when we get angry, and we will get angry, our focus has to be on loving one another and building up the body. If we're not careful, anger can make us selfish. Anger can make us think only of my wants and my needs and my rights and my pride. And so because of that, I don't care what happens to anybody else. I'm going to make my anger known in whatever way I feel necessary. And if somebody gets their feelings hurt, fine. But that's not what Christian community is built on. That even when we're hurt, even when we're angry, our first responsibility is to look to the needs of others, just like we look to the needs of ourselves, and to count other people more significant than ourselves, even when they're the ones that make us angry. And so even in our anger, we should act out of love and compassion and mercy and seek to use that to build up the body. Because if we're not careful, Paul says that we can give opportunity to the devil. And I love how the Reformation Study Bible explains that passage. Says because practical unity among believers displays God's reconciling power, the devil especially prizes its disruption. Because the church has an opportunity to show the reconciling writing of relationships that God gives us in a way that nothing else can. And so anytime there's an opportunity for that to fall, it opens up the entire world, not just the devil, but all the enemies of the church to say, see, there's nothing special about your God at all, because look how you conduct yourselves. So Paul says there's going to be a time to be angry, maybe even with one another. But when that happens, be angry and don't gossip. Be angry and don't lash out out of a short temper. Be angry and do no harm. Be angry and do nothing to hurt anyone. Be angry and don't sin. Instead, our calling is to be angry and love. That when we're angry, we talk openly and honestly. And that we don't let the sun go down on our anger. That we put our anger to rest as quickly as we possibly can so there's no space for the devil to get involved. So there's no space for division or bitterness to grow. So we come and we speak openly and honestly, and we put this to rest so that we continue to grow not just individually in Christ, but as one body working together for one cause and one purpose. And so we put off the falsehood and we put on words of truth. We put off wild anger and we put on self control and love. And then Paul talks about work. He says, Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. When I read that passage, I immediately thought of another pretty well-known story. Because one time when Jesus was teaching, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a tax collector in the crowd. And Zacchaeus, like all other tax collectors of that time, well, I won't say all, maybe there were some shining stars in the bunch, but the most of them were kind of dirtbags. Because what they would do is they would take money from their own people to give to a foreign occupying government. And not only would they take just what the Roman government was asking from their fellow people, but they would charge way over that and then get rich off of the extras that they were draining out of their own people. And then if that wasn't bad enough, they would take all the money that they've made, that they've made themselves rich on, and they would use that to live wild, lavish lifestyles, sinful lifestyles, not caring about anything else that was going on. And so they were pretty unlikable people. It also tells us that Zacchaeus was kind of a short dude, and he couldn't see Jesus. And so he climbs up in a tree to oversee and to to lay his eyes on Jesus and hear what Jesus was talking about. And so Jesus sees him and he walks up. He says, hey man, that's kind of weird. Why don't you come down from the tree and let's go get something to eat. I'm going to come over to your house and let's eat together. And so Jesus goes into this tax collector's house and he starts to share with them the words of life and, and Zacchaeus sees who he is. And Zacchaeus is forever changed. Zacchaeus looks at Jesus and he says, I am so sorry for what I've done. And because of meeting you, everything is different. And so I'm not just going to give back what I took. I'm going to give back four times what I took from these people. And I want to go out and use the wealth that I amassed for, for poor reasons. And I want to give that away and benefit my community. And we learned something very important from Zacchaeus. That on one hand, repentance is not just about turning away from the bad stuff. Zacchaeus didn't just say, I'm going to stop doing what I've been doing, but that he put it into action and say, I'm going to replace these negative actions, these sinful actions with something that honors God, but also something that's good for the community. And in Zacchaeus' story, we find out that individual repentance has the power to change an entire community. And in verse 28, Paul talks about exactly that. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. And we see in this again that repentance isn't just about putting something down. A lot of times we can think about repentance as saying, here's this sin that's going on in my life, and so God, I'm going to put it down, and I'm going to walk away, and I'm not going to touch that anymore. But the Bible tells us that there's a problem with idle hands. And idle hands tend to want to go back and pick up the things that they're most familiar with. And so Paul says that it's our responsibility to not only put down our sin, to not only put down, in this case, for the thief to put down his thieving, I think that's a word, we'll call it a word, to put down his thieving, but also to let it go and then put his hands to the plow, doing good, honest work with his hands for the good of the community. And so repentance in our lives isn't just about walking away, but finding something else to do, to use these gifts that God has given us to work for the good of God's glory, for our own good, and for the good of the kingdom. The church should be a place where the dishonest thief can meet the resurrected Son of God and lay down his old trade and pick up the work of the kingdom. The church is a place where we not only find in Christ's new life, We not only find the truth that if we believe in Jesus, that the old is past and our sins are forgiven and we've been made new in Jesus. But as we've seen over and over again through this series, that he gives us new gifts, that he equips us to be able to do new work. And so in the church, we find new work as well as new life. But for this to happen, the church has to be a place where a thief can come and find respite from everything going on outside of the building. And to be able to meet Christ through the people and through the word. And to have a safe place to come and to lay it down and to to meet Jesus, to find this new life, and then to be equipped and to be gifted to go out and do what he's called to do. And so we have to be a place. And we should have a reputation as a church that this is a place where broken sinners come not only to find new life, but new purpose and new hope. And so that means when people come through our doors, no matter what we know about them, no matter who they are, that we can bring them in and that we love them and that we care for them and we share the gospel with them and we struggle with them and we succeed with them and we walk through life with them. And this work that happens in this transition isn't simply to better ourselves as we put down our sin and pick up new work, but it's to serve the body. Paul says that it's our responsibility to go from being selfish thieves to selfless servants. That in Paul's story, the thief puts down his old work and picks up his new work so that he can share whatever he has with anyone that has need. And so we have this calling in our own lives to daily participate in repentance, of looking at our lives as we confess our sins, to lay those sins down at the foot of the cross and to replace them with something that is honoring and glorifying to God that is good for us, but then using that to share with anyone in need, especially inside the context of the church. And this means that we have to be a place where this can be true for other people as well. And so Paul calls us not just to speak truth and put away falsehood, Not just to be self-controlled and put away wild anger, but to put away our own sin and take on honest, selfless work that builds up the body of Christ. And then finally, he wraps back around and talks about speech. And in verse 29, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, I do kind of wonder, how Paul might have worded this differently if he was familiar with social media and 24-hour news. If he had some insight into the way that we freely talk about and with one another in a digital world and in a media-driven world. But I do think this new open line of invulnerable and sometimes anonymous communication has showed us something very important about ourselves. Because the reality is, it is very easy not to pay attention to the words that we use. Or we can use words that are harmful or hurtful or disastrous and damaging to people, and we can write those things off. We have all kinds of little catchphrases. We have rhymes that we teach children to make them believe that words don't really matter that much. And so the adult version of that is we can just say, you know what, it's just something that people say. It doesn't matter as long as you're not doing it, as long as you can just say it, then it's not a big deal. Words aren't really that powerful. Or on a political spectrum or a social spectrum, we can say, I'm just not very politically correct. And the church version of that is, well, brother, I just like to speak the truth in love. But what that means is we feel like we can just say whatever we want to people and not have to worry about the consequences because after all, it's just words. But words matter, especially Christian words. Dorothy Day once said that words are as strong and powerful as bombs. And she said, they're as powerful as napalm, that sticky bomb that just lasts and burns forever. The words have the power to do incredible damage and lasting damage in the lives of people, especially in the context of the church. And we have to remember that we serve a vocal God. That from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 2, we see that we serve a God who speaks, a God who spoke the world and all it's here into existence for his glory and his good. We have a God that all throughout Scripture has made it a point to not only reveal himself to his people, but to speak to his people. We were saved by the grace of Jesus who who John says is the word of God made flesh. And because of that, our words should reflect his love and his grace. And where Christianity departs from just good old american moralism is this is a lot more than that thumper philosophy from bambi that if you can't say anything nice don't say anything at all because niceness saying nice things is easy and then the alternative of just closing our mouths if we don't have anything to say but not actually dealing with our hearts is cowardice because any one of us can learn enough self-control to just stop talking to everybody Because if that was the case, if it was always just about not saying what's in your head, I would genuinely never be allowed to speak again. Because that's just the stuff that lives in my mind. And so it's not just about trying to find something nice to say. And if we can't find something nice to say, don't say anything at all. But it's about changing our hearts to learn to love one another with that grace and mercy of Jesus. Because Paul says that the way that we use our words is like this. He says, instead of corrupting and deceitful talk, He says the only words that we should use are only such that are good for building up, that fits the occasion, and that these words may give grace to those who hear. Our words should not be hurtful. Our words should do no harm to other people. Our words should not be, as Paul says, they shouldn't be corrupting talk that are divisive and heartbreaking. But our words are also not supposed to be neutral. Our words are supposed to always and only be used for building up our brothers and sisters in Christ and building up our neighbors. That our words need to be saturated with the grace and mercy of God who spoke everything into being. Our words need to be filled with the grace and mercy of Jesus who cared for widows and orphans and prostitutes and tax collectors and everyone in between. A Jesus who, as he was hanging on the cross, used some of his last words to say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. That is our model for speech. And if we are using our words for anything else, we are failing as children of God and as part of the body of Christ. Christ. And so we need to ask ourselves, do our words give grace to all who hear? Do the words that I say reflect the goodness and kindness and mercy of Jesus Christ? And I would imagine all of us at some point in time can answer that question no. Maybe not as much as I can answer that question no, but all of us at some point in time say no, my words are not honoring and glorifying god by being gracious and mercy and kind and so each and every one of us have the opportunity day after day to be better and better at this and we can practice with one another building one another up through grace-filled speech then in verse 30 paul says and do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Paul says this isn't who you're supposed to be. You're not supposed to be a group of bitter and hateful and angry people who are constantly backstabbing and turning on one another. That's not who you were designed to be. And in fact, he goes one step further by saying that it grieves your God when you act this way. That it grieves the Holy Spirit when we live in a way that grieves other people. The church is no place for this bitterness and wrath and this slander and this malice. Instead, verse 32 should be our theme. It says, Be kind to one another, tender hearted, and forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is who we're supposed to be. This is the culture that we're supposed to have in the church. This should be our passion and this should be our identity. That when people think about Redeeming Grace Community Church and when people think about the church of God all over the world, they should say those are people who are kind to one another. Those are people who are tenderhearted and vulnerable with one another. Those are people who even when other people mess up and fall short, they forgive one another because they believe that Jesus forgave them of something insurmountable. So how could they not forgive one another as well? And when that's our passion, when that's our culture, when that's our theme, we will stand out as one church, one body, with one spirit and one hope that's ours in Christ Jesus. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God, the Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. And we will be able to display to the world around us the beautiful and mysterious gospel of Jesus that not only has the power to save us and make us new, but that can make us one body. Brothers and sisters in Christ who can love and serve one another and then love and serve together just as Christ loves us and to answer the call to go and make disciples of all nations. To go, as we're going to talk about in James in several weeks, and care for widows and orphans and those in need. To be able to confess our sins to one another and lift one another up and weep and cry and all these things together as one body with one heart because we have one Savior. And so this is how we stay together. Jesus has given us everything that we need to do that, and we have no excuses. And so let's make this a place where the community of Christ and the unity of Christ is present in all we do, and all we say. And then let's take that into the world and put on display the goodness and grace and mercy of God.